Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, pie. I talk with the very endearing Stacy Mayan Fong about her cookbook, 50 Pies, 50 States, an immigrant's love letter to the United States through pie. Then we're sharing an excerpt from Connecticut Public's Where We Live about a scandal involving, of all things, baking powder. But first, Stacy talks about what inspired her to not only create a pie for each state, but to dedicate it to someone special connected to that state. Oh, and a little heads up, you might hear a few bumps and thumps while we were talking. That's Stacy's pup, Nora, jumping around. You've seen Nora on Instagram, and apparently she wanted to be on the radio too. Stacy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on Seasoned. Thank you, Robin. I'm so happy to be here with you. We often talk with guests about their culinary journeys, and it's sort of a metaphor, but your book represents an actual journey. So describe for our listeners what inspired your 50 Pies, 50 States project. So I started this project in 2015, and I decided that I was going to bake a pie for every state in America and then give it to someone that I knew from that state as kind of my Nancy Myers, Nora Ephron, rom-com grand gesture to the country that I've chosen to call home and the people that have made it my home. And I chose to do this project because, you know, if you've ever applied for a visa or any sort of like immigration situation, <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of money. And I wanted something that was joyful that I could tether myself to, to like give me inspiration to keep going. You know what I mean? Or like to give me a reason to understand like why I was doing this in the first place. Really, the roots of the project stemmed from, I grew up in a Chinese household and in a Chinese household, it's not a very like huggy or like words of affirmation type way to show love. The way you show love to each other is through food. So yeah, it had to be pie, the most American food for me to show everybody in America how much I love them. If someone dedicated a pie to me, I would probably cry. I think it's the most <laughs> special thing. What did some of your friends say when you presented them with this? It was like a lot of emotions too, because for me, it was also learning how to like express in words because I did this all through Instagram and as blog posts where I would write state facts about the state. And then I would write facts about why I made the certain pie that I did for that state based on like a state fruit, uh, food or some sort of regional cuisine, or like a childhood food memory that my friend had tied to that state, or a food memory that I had tied to that state. And then I would write my friend like a dedication about like why they are the person that's getting this pie. And it was such an exercise for me too, in being able to like express emotion verbally instead of being like, oh, I made you this meal. So like, you must know that I love you. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it was like very emotional, but it also was really fun because you should always try and give the people that you love their roses when you can, you know? Absolutely. Now, I would love to hear some of the stories behind a few of the pies, and I would love it if you would start with New York's apple pie, because you've lived there for over a decade now, correct? And so I wonder, how did you honor your state? 
It's so funny now that I'm like, wow, I've lived here more than a decade. It is really anticlimactic that I celebrated my 10 year in New York during 2020. (laughs) I had like such a grand vision of what I was going to do. But you know, it honestly was one of the most difficult ones to do because it held so much weight. Um, Ever since I was little, I wrote myself a letter that I was going to move to New York and I was going to own an apartment in Soho where like the elevator doors opened up into the apartment and I was going to live this like whole life I created in my head. And now that I've lived here for so long, I love it just as much or even more. So like, how am I supposed to capture like all of this emotion into one pie? And one of my core memories from visiting here when I was younger was we went to my dad's friend's house. It was like a weekend and there was like the New York Times on his kitchen table. There was black coffee and an Entenmann's coffee cake. And I never had coffee cake before. It's not a very common thing you find in Hong Kong or Singapore. And I was like, oh, this is so delicious. And the smells and the textures were so like such a core memory that I was like, I need to translate this into some sort of pie form. I knew the pie had to be apple. It's the big apple. Come on. You know, I had to do it. But how can I make it so special? And I chose to do an apple pie with the Entenmann's coffee cake crumble on top. And after like much deep diving, I found out that Entenmann's was like the first food delivery service in the city. And it made sure that everybody all over the city had powdered donuts or the coffee cakes for like whatever they needed on a Sunday or like a special occasion. And I thought that that was so special, you know, everybody kind of takes it for granted now because it's everywhere. But it started at such a like special and like just New York thing. Mm -hmm. And you did capture like the best part of the Entenmann's coffee cake is not crumble. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's just a reason to eat more crumble. (laughs) Totally. And it's a good example of your creativity, because you don't just always go for the obvious when you're putting these pies together. Even when there's a pie that seems like a classic, there's always some surprising element in like the topping or the crumble, like potato chip crumble on Washington's cherry pie. That's a good example. You've created flavor combinations that really show your imagination and your sense of humor. So I wonder, is there a pie that you want to share maybe that's that's an example of how you took a classic, but yours is a totally surprising spin on it? Oh, I think we could talk about Georgia. The blessing is that I am a home baker. I'm not a classically trained chef or a classically trained pastry chef. And I feel like because I don't have those limitations in my head, it like pies the limit, right? Like I saw a pie as this blank canvas that like I could do whatever I wanted to with because this was my project. (laughs) So when I got to states like Georgia, it had to be a peach pie. But like, how could I make this my peach pie? And when I went to college in Savannah, it was like the first time I had sweet tea. I knew I wanted some sort of sweet tea, like scented peach pie. So I ended up making like a sweet tea syrup to flavor the pie instead of using sugar. I was just kind of thinking about things like outside the box and also thinking about how certain states like I could do savory instead of sweet. I grew up in two British colonies. So pie was more of a savory thing for me than a sweet thing. And it wasn't until I came over to the States where I was like, whoa, there's like custard pies and ice cream pies. It was kind of amazing that I was like, pie can be whatever you want it to be, which is a great metaphor for the life that you can create in this country. Totally. I'm all about a savory pie. My people are Canadian. So you know that we grow up, one of our first foods is a meat pie. So... Exactly, exactly. I used to eat these Australian meat pies like after rugby practice. 
for me, pie was like a totally savory thing till I moved here. Yeah. And another example of how you're so creative with your spins on things and the toppings and whatnot is your Wisconsin cranberry pie with fried cheese curds on top. Um, you say this pie should be eaten with Milwaukee's champagne of beers while watching football. So that has some personality to it. And then North Carolina's pie, speaking of savory pies, is a pulled pork pie topped with hush puppies. That's really fun stuff. I'm a real like textural eater. I love when there's like crunchy bits and soft bits and sour things and salty things and like sweet pops. So I was thinking about everything from crust up, I would say, you know, like how can I flavor like the crust and also the filling and then have some sort of topping to add another texture. But I never wanted anything to be too much. So I tried to like balance things as well as possible. Like North Carolina is a great example where the barbecue sauce uses cheer wine, which is this regional soda down there, which is so delicious. It's like a more intense cherry-ish root beer. And it's so nice to use like in a barbecue savory form that's like flavoring pork. And then you have a bit of a coleslaw to like cut the richness. Who doesn't love a ball of fried dough, you know? (laughs) So yeah, it's just like really thinking about like different ways to like eat it and different flavor components. And even if you do get the cookbook, like you don't make the whole North Carolina pie, but you just take the barbecue sauce recipe or the hush puppy recipe, like that's amazing too. Um, You mentioned incorporating like a local soda into that one. And there's a couple of pies that have a local soda. There's a moxie involved. And so I wanted to ask, how did you incorporate regional ingredients to the pies that you were inspired by? So the beautiful thing about America is that each state has like their state bird, their state flower. Some have their state cookie, their state dessert and all that stuff. And then when I was digging further into that, I found out there were like regional sodas that didn't cross certain regions in the States, which I thought was so funny because growing up in Hong Kong, everybody drinks Coca-Cola. There's like Sprite and 7-Up. There wasn't really like anything that was like too specific. And when I found out about things like Cheerwine and Moxie, I was like, I'd love to find a way to like incorporate this into that state because it's such a like emblem of the state too. With Moxie, it was so bitter that it reminded me of drinking like an Amaro after dinner, which I kind of love. So yeah, it's just like another fun way to think about things. And with the state foods and fruits, like sometimes I took the obvious route, like Alabama was the first pie I did in the project. And I was like, I'm going to make it easy for myself. State fruit is peaches, state berry is blackberries, state nut is a pecan. I was like, let's go. This pie built itself. You know, but then West Virginia, I knew that I was going to ignore any of the state foods or fruits that it had, but I was going to make a pie based on a pepperoni roll, which is a lard bread with a log of pepperoni in it that my friend Jeffrey, who got the West Virginia pie, he always told me about him eating this pepperoni roll growing up, which made me think about this milk bread and hot dog bun that I would eat growing up in Hong Kong. So like the parallels there were really wonderful where like we both grew up on two different sides of the earth, but we're eating something kind of similar. And so like, that's what I wanted to incorporate into that pie. So it was really like I had some parameters, but I really let my imagination run wild. All the fun stuff that we don't learn in history or civics class It's all in your book. So you mentioned some state (laughs) foods, some state muffins, which I didn't know was a thing, state ice creams and and weird laws about food. And I'm very embarrassed to admit that I didn't know that the snickerdoodle was Connecticut's state cookie. (laughs) I know it's so bad. I didn't even know we had a state cookie. So tell me about this one. Connecticut's pie is a, a snickerdoodle pie. 
Yeah, so it's a snickerdoodle souffle pie, which is really fun because you kind of make this like syrup and cookie soft filling and then it puffs up in the oven and gets like really grand and then like settles down and then the syrup is incorporated into it all in the oven. Like it's like a one pan wonder, which is pretty great. That's the wonderful thing is that each state has its own little special thing. And I found out that a lot of the times when like a state fruit or a cookie or something is passed through legislation, it's because teachers are teaching elementary school kids how bills become laws and stuff like that. So it's educational, but also really fun that they get to petition why this one thing gets to be the state whatever, you know? Yeah, I had no idea that blueberry was New Jersey's state fruit. Yes, because... New Jersey gave us what's known as the high bush blueberry, and it's the blueberry that we see in grocery stores everywhere. Prior to that, there was only the wild blueberry, which is really hard to harvest. It's a low bush. You know, it really does a number on your back trying to get them off that bush. So New Jersey developed like a type of blueberry that grows higher that you can harvest much easier, which is why we get the plethora of blueberries we get to enjoy all the time now. Well, thank you, New Jersey. (laughs) Seriously, seriously. Thank you, New Jersey. (laughs) What were some other of the more surprising food facts that you learned while doing your research for these pies? Probably the most interesting and the most heartwarming one was for South Dakota. When I got to South Dakota, I was really, really stumped at what I was going to do. I barely knew anybody that had been to South Dakota. Coincidentally, my friend Matt, who got the Massachusetts pie, He had just done a project for a bunch of historians that live in the Black Hills in South Dakota, which, man, sometimes the universe really gives you what you need at the right time. And so I ended up emailing them and they introduced me to the work of Sean Sherman, the sous chef. I read his cookbook cover to cover and learned so much of Native American cuisine, where I was like, ooh, like things are flavored with berries instead of sugar and all of this stuff. So my South Dakota pie is a sunflower milk wild rice pudding pie with a berry bergamot um, sauce and a little like crunchy maple seed pepita crunch on top. I wanted that to like highlight Native American cuisine, which essentially is the cuisine of America, but people have very little idea about it. And I think it's really funny as someone that's grown up in Hong Kong that there's so much like Cantonese cuisine all over New York City, but it's so hard to find Native American cuisine, even though I really want to eat it all the time. And I just want to mention, too, that wild rice pudding pie for South Dakota, it is one of the most gorgeous pies in your book. And there are it is among many, many, many gorgeous pies. (laughs) Yeah, it's got a blue corn crust. So it's like deep and purple. And you get to home make the sunflower milk, which is much easier than you think it is. And it's like wild rice. So it's like got all the little purple specks in it, you know, so I really thought about like the way the pies would look visually as well. So we talked about Connecticut's pie, and I wonder if we could jump one state over, and this is also another gorgeous pie in the book. It's your Boston cream pie pie, and I love this one. I wonder if you could kind of, you know, explain what this pie pie is. The funny thing about a Boston cream pie is that it's not a pie, it's a cake. (laughs) And the reason for that is that before cake pans were invented, most cakes were baked in pie pans, 
that's where like the funny kind of like wordplay comes into play. So I thought I would take the joke even funnier and like take it one step further, which feels like a very Boston and Massachusetts thing to do. Um, so I decided to make it a Boston cream pie pie. So it's got all the elements of something that's a Boston cream pie cake, but in pie form. So it's got the pie crust, a chocolate ganache, a vanilla custard, and then it's topped with big hunks of pound cake and drizzled with chocolate sauce on top. I like to cook and I love to bake bread and cookies and pies and cakes. I'm convinced my mama was right, so I'm gonna bake him a berry pie. Give me a pie topped with pound cake any day. Boston doesn't just have a great cake, it's got a state muffin, corn, and a state donut too. It's Boston cream, but you knew that. You're listening to my conversation with Stacey May Yan Fong. She's the author of 50 Pies, 50 States. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, Stacey talks about pumpkin pie and the breakfast pie she dedicated to the one and only Dolly Parton. She'll also offer up some pie baking tips for all of us home bakers. If your crust is getting too soft, throw it in the freezer for a little while. Take a beat and then start again. Make sure like the liquid you're using for your pie crust has ice cubes in it or is cold. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. You've been listening to my conversation with Stacey May Yan Fong. She's the author of 50 Pies, 50 States. Stacy created the 50 Pies, 50 States project while applying for permanent residency in the United States. She researched each state, developed a pie recipe inspired by the state, and dedicated the pie to a friend or special person connected to that state. So far, we talked about the pies she created to celebrate New York, Georgia, Alabama, Washington, West Virginia, and South Dakota. She walked us through Connecticut's pie and the Boston cream pie pie she made for Massachusetts. That's a fun one. Next, I want to talk about the pies I'd consider wild, 
And I'm not talking about wild berry pies. Stacy has dreamed up some truly unique pie recipes. I let pie be anything I want it to be, you know? And so for Nevada, what was I supposed to do? Like fill a pie crust with sand? Like I had no idea. All of my memories with Nevada were tied to Vegas because my dad worked in the hotel industry. So the first time I got to go to Las Vegas was with my dad on a business trip. And I just remember just seeing like, whoa, this is like excess. Like you can have your cake and eat it too here. Everything's so wild. And because I am a card carrying Virgo, I made an Excel spreadsheet. Where <laughs> of I course wrote you down, did. Of course I did. I wrote down all the major casinos in Las Vegas. And then I wrote down the common denominators on their all-you-can-eat buffet. So like the Luxor to the Bellagio had like a prime rib, some sort of crab, like a shrimp cocktail. And then I was like, how can I make this into a pie? And I had a lodged cast iron, like a cornbread pan, like the kind where the cast iron's like separated into eight compartments. And I was like, oh my gosh, what if I blind bake the pie crust so it's in these compartments, kind of like chafing dishes on a buffet and like filled each one so that you got a tasting menu of pie. And it kind of looked like a roulette wheel. Half of it would be sweet. Half of it would be savory. I know now you're listening to me and you're like, this girl is absolutely insane. And, you know, this is like me alone in my kitchen going like, oh my God, like I have to do this. The pie basically eats half of it is savory in an herbed crust and it goes... Caesar salad, shrimp cocktail, crab legs, and garlic butter, and then mashed potatoes, prime rib, and caramelized onions. And then on the sweet side, it's in an all-butter crust, and it goes chocolate sundae, chocolate mousse, cheesecake, and then fruit tart. So you could essentially like eat this whole pie in one sitting and get like a little slice of every bit of an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I just like really had fun with it. And a lot of people have thought it's absolutely insane, but also like this is my interpretation so I could do whatever I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And it's the first time I ever saw a photo in a cookbook styled with casino chips, like vintage burlesque art and a couple of condoms. So I think you really captured the weekend in (laughs) Vegas pretty well. Yeah. So (laughs) with the styling of the cookbook, you know, it's pretty hard, right? Like we're shooting 50 pies. It's the same thing. Like you want to open the page and I want you to be like transported to that state. Like you said with Nevada, like we want it to be like 3 a.m. on a casino floor. What does that look like? And then... For Kansas, we were like, it's 5 p.m., the sun is setting. I am also a huge Taylor Swift fan, so I put little Easter eggs throughout the book that you'll see where it's like, for Kansas, there's two little red salt and pepper shakers that are supposed to look like Dorothy's slippers, and it's like on a blue gingham tablecloth that like looks like her dress. You know, I had a lot of fun with this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, I know you're not a fan of pumpkin pie, but I wanted to ask about Illinois pie, the deep dish pumpkin pie, because you wrote that it was an engineering feat. How so? Making something deep dish already is just really hard. You know, props to people that make deep dish pizzas, props to like many layered cakes, and then filling it with a filling that's liquid and making sure that it doesn't leak through the sides and also bakes all the way through. In my like very, for lack of a better word, Brooklyn apartment was very hard. with like my terrible apartment oven, but I did it and it looks so grand, you know, like a pumpkin pie already here is such a like symbol of like a wonderful time of the year. 
it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of collapsed pies, and a lot of filling everywhere. But in the end, totally worth it. I love that you you mentioned that it was a challenge, but you were doing it anyway in an imperfect situation, and that you're not a professional baker, you're a home baker, but you just gave yourself permission to just have a blast with this, and even, you know, mistakes could be delicious. Exactly. And the thing is, I feel like now with the culture that we live in and the way like Instagram is, everything has to be perfect all the time. And that's just so exhausting. <laughs> like it's absolutely exhausting that like you always have to look your best or your bakes have to look so beautiful. Like it doesn't matter. And everybody is their own worst critic. So when it comes to my time in the kitchen, I kind of let it ride and I do what I want and mistakes are going to happen, but such is life, right? And like you can't get too bogged down about it and it at the end it's really fun and even if something really bing bong happens like you'll have a funny story to share with your friends so it's all worth it and at the end of the day there's pie even if it's bad just put ice cream on it and everything will be okay that's right there are several breakfast pies in the book but of course i want to know the story behind the pie you created inspired by the person you call the love of your life, Dolly Parton. And so honestly, I think there's something wrong with people who don't worship at the altar of Dolly Parton. So tell me about this pie. Truly. First, Dolly Parton embodies like everything you should love about America. All the goodness in America is stored in the heart of Dolly Parton. I grew up listening to Dolly Parton on the South China Sea in Hong Kong. Like that seems so crazy because I was, you know, looking out my window at the ocean, listening to Tennessee Mountain Home, which is kind of hilarious. Couldn't be more different, but like all the sentiments are the same. And so when it got to Tennessee, I knew I had to do a pie dedicated to her. And so her favorite breakfast is biscuits and gravy. So I made like a sausage gravy filling with a biscuit style pie crust on the outside. And I decided to make a portrait of Dolly Parton out of pie crust for the topping. In the cookbook, there's a QR code for all the like templates for when I do like a fancier crust or the portraits if you would like to do it as well. And yeah, I couldn't think of like a better ode to a woman that has been my role model throughout my life. And maybe one day I'll get to meet her and we'll get to eat pie together. And then if I die the next day, I will die a very happy woman. <laughs> it is a little surprising that Dolly hasn't reached out and said, I hey. know. <laughs> Hopefully one day, hopefully one day, when the time is right, the universe, the universe will give it. Could you offer some tips for home bakers? Because a lot of people will be inspired by the fact that you are not a pastry chef. And aside from a short stint at 4 and 20 Blackbird's Pie Bakery in Brooklyn, you are self-taught. I want to ask, can you expand on a quote from 50 Pies, 50 States? And, and here it is. I'm all about the butter, baby. So I love all butter crust. If you love to use Crisco or lard or anything else, like have at it. It's your kitchen. It's your pie crust. But I just love the flavor that butter gives you. And the higher fat percentage in butter, like a European butter, the tastier your crust is. So if you want to splurge on one ingredient in your pie making process, splurge on the butter because your crust is kind of the foundation for everything else. So pay the most attention to that. And also just chill in your kitchen, not only in the fact that you need to be in a calm mindset while baking, because it really helps, but also use your fridge and your freezer. If your crust is getting too soft, throw it in the freezer for a little while, take a beat and then start again and make sure like the liquid you're using for your pie crust has ice cubes in it or is cold. That will kind of help you if you have really warm hands and want to like work on your crust a little longer. And also at the end of the day, 
If you want to focus on just making the filling and not making the crust, buy a store-bought crust. No one is going to judge you for it. And I feel a lot of people get really bogged down about the crust making part. And I don't want cooking or pie making or anything to be more stressful than life already is. So if buying the pie crust will make your life a little easier, just do it. You know, like no one's going to judge you. And especially when, like, let's say someone is going to make a recipe from the book, the fillings are so creative in and of themselves. You really can't just put all your effort and energy into that and feel like whoever you gift this pie to is going to be happy, whether the crust is homemade or not. Exactly. Exactly. And the beauty of baking and the beauty of cooking in itself is sharing the food that you're making with someone else. And like the person that you're sharing it with understands the effort that you've put into it, whether every single element is homemade or not. I mean, Sandra Lee is another idol of mine. She's, you know, made an entire career of making things semi-homemade. So you can too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's right. Um, I had a a pie teacher once tell me to always use a glass pan so I could hold it up and see if the crust was cooked through on the bottom. Do you have a preference about using metal pans versus glass pans? Or is there a good time for one versus the other? I'm a metal pan girl. It's thinner. So like you're kind of guaranteed that there won't be a soggy bottom. Well, as with a glass pan, sometimes if it's a thicker Pyrex one, you'll have to cook the pie for a little longer. It's honestly purely personal preference. But if you are someone that needs the visual, then a glass pan works for you. And could you go through a little bit of the process of blind baking a crust and why that's important? Some people think it's a step you can skip, but they always regret it, I think, after. (laughs) Yeah. So blind baking is really important because it gives your crust a head start in the cooking process. You don't want to pour your liquid crust into one that isn't blind baked if it's not going to cook for a really long time everything will just become like a soggy mess. So blind baking is just guaranteeing that your crust will cook through and you won't have a soggy bottom. And this doesn't apply to all liquid fillings, only some, and it's kind of a case-by-case basis. But if a recipe advises you to blind bake your crust, you should blind bake your crust. Mm -hmm. The book came out over the summer and lots of people were talking about your 4th of July pie and you were touring a lot. And so I wondered, while you were out in the world sharing these pies, were people just inundating you with their special pie stories? It was so, so wonderful being on tour and like going to all these book events and meeting all the people that came to the events was so wonderful because each of them had a wonderful story to tell me that was related to pie. And that's also why I chose pie as like my medium to like figure out what home meant to me, figure out this country as best as I can. And also like show the people that have made this country my home, how much I love them. I chose pie because Pie is so wholesome, you know, like pie is a really tender thing here. And everybody has a wonderful memory and a story they want to share about pie. And one of my favorite TV shows, Pushing Daisies, there is a line in it that the main character Ned says that says, candy is a rolling carnival through town, pie is home and people always come home. And that was like a huge thing for me about this is that while touring, I'm in these people's homes, right? Like I'm in their home state of like DC or Boston or Delaware. And they're telling me stories of pie that they would eat like with their grandparents or that their uncle would make them or like they would do with their moms. And like, it's so wonderful how when you give someone like a subject to talk about that they want to share with you like deep and personal stories, you know, like, and I feel really blessed that people are willing to do that with me. 
Yeah, and it's one of the things that you miss when someone's gone. Is yes. Their pie. Yes, yes, yes. The pie or like the recipes. One of the recipes in the cookbook is the Ohio pie. And I got the Buckeye recipe from my friend Meredith's grandma. And it's like so wonderful that people are willing to share this information with me. I'm not in her family. I'm one of her daughter's friends. Like, it's so wonderful that she wanted to do this for me, you know, and I couldn't be more thankful that pie and this journey that I've taken to live here has brought me closer to all these people. It's very clear that you, Stacy, like me and a lot of people listening right now, love people with food. And I just want to thank you for giving us 50 new pies, 50 new, <laughs> new, new things to love people with. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Robin. It's been so much fun. And like, hopefully we'll get to eat a slice of pie together in the future. Yeah, the Connecticut pie. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That was Stacy Mayan Fong. Her book, 50 Pies, 50 States, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the United States Through Pie, is out now. Want to make our state's pie? We have recipes from Stacy's book. You can make the snickerdoodle pie, the beautiful Boston cream pie pie, and a gorgeous maple pumpkin pie to honor New Hampshire. Go to ctpublic.org recipes. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up, Learn about how a 19th century business tycoon with ties to Greenwich and an all-star athlete from Yale became key players in what's known in American and culinary history as the Baking Powder Wars. Baking powder was front page news at the time. And you've got hearings in Congress because the pure food and drug law is coming up. And the Baking Powder War was so intense it almost prevented passage of this. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Connecticut boasts a historical culinary legacy. The state claims to have created the first hamburger the modern lollipop, and possibly even the iconic lobster roll. But did you know that Connecticut was also a key player in the baking powder wars? In the 19th century, baking powder cut the labor required for home bakers, which is to say women. Baking powder offered quick and reliable leavening, unlike yeast or pearl ash, an early chemical leavener documented in America's first cookbook. This innovation made baking more accessible and less time-consuming. But not everything was easy. Before baking powder became a kitchen staple, there was a state-level showdown over the rights to produce and sell it. That's what this excerpt from a recent Where We Live episode is all about. Connecticut Public's Patrick Scahill spoke with food historian Linda Civitello, author of Baking Powder Wars, the cutthroat food fight that revolutionized cooking. They also talk about the first cookbook published in America in 1796. And yep, that was in Connecticut too. Linda described how baking powder, which was preferable to yeast at the time, revolutionized the challenges associated with baking. 
Well, first of all, baking powder is the opposite of yeast. Yeast is fickle and baking powder just says, you know, hot, cold, wet, dry. I don't care. I am not temperature sensitive. I am not weather climate sensitive. Just let me at it. So there is money to be made here because housewives go wild for this. So in the 1860s, William Ziegler, they moved to New York because that's where business is happening. William Ziegler is a salesman and he becomes then the head of Royal Baking Powder. He also has a place uh, later on in Greenwich. He decides, Royal Baking Powder decides that they are going to knock all of the competition out through advertising. And what they come up with is all the other baking powders are poison. You could say this at the time, right? You had all kinds of medicines that were advertising that they cured cancer and headaches and whatever. Right. And, you know, worth noting at the time, right, there's no regulatory oversight for this. So I can I can kind of publish and say anything I want. Right. Right. This becomes the war. And we see headlines in papers saying, is your baking powder killing you? Is it malaria or is it baking powder? (laughs) And people are getting scared. And Royal paid them to print these above the fold as straight news. And they also had contracts with newspapers that said no one can print a rebuttal. So they had the biggest market share in the beginning. And as it started to dwindle, as competition came in, including one that had an ingredient called it was sodium aluminum sulfate, which they called alum. And they went after the alum people. And what they finally did, what Royal did was in 1899, they bribed the Missouri state legislature to pass a law making all other baking powders illegal in the state of Missouri. And that stayed on the books until 1905. So I'm kind of a history geek, and I'm not often surprised by weird things that I read in in history books when it comes to the history of business. But this one was sort of surprising to me. And I don't know if it's just because it is such a regular part of our lives in the kitchen now. It's just a product on a shelf, and it's there. Um, But, I mean, were you kind of surprised when you saw that? I mean, they were bribing the Missouri legislature, and people were going to jail over this. Like, grocers were going to jail if they were putting the wrong type of stuff on the shelf, right? Yes, it all surprised me. I thought this was this started out being like a couple of paragraphs in a book I was going to write about the history of breakfast. And I thought, let me start with something simple. You know, 10,000 pages later, um, Supreme Court cases, every state health department cases, it was stunning. It was so naked. And this is how naked business and bribery were. Business is huge. And Royal Baking Powder has capitalized at $20 million. For example, Ford Motor Company at about the same time, $150,000. So they have massive amounts of money and they go in and they are distributing $1,000 bills. Then the Missouri State Senate, they're flashing them around in saloons, going to change for a thousand. You know, the Missouri legislature was already controlled, the Senate, the Missouri State Senate was controlled by a lobbyist for the railroads. He was sitting behind a curtain. He wasn't out in the lobby going, oh, please vote for my bill. He was behind a curtain in a chair like a throne. And he had runners who would go out to the the floor of the Missouri Senate with little pieces of paper telling the senators that he had bought and paid for how to vote. And I think that's where the Wizard of Oz comes from. But Yeah. And then we get the muckraking press comes in and they said, this is corruption. When businesses contribute money to political campaigns, this is wholesale bribery 
and bribery is treason. And the article that Lincoln Steppens, the premier muckraker in the United States, wrote about this called Business is Treason, Enemies of the Republic, was about baking powder and Ziegler. How was the public reacting at this time? I mean, obviously they're they're going to be looking for the cheapest thing anyway and the most efficient thing uh, when they're when they're making their food. But how are they reacting, or were they aware of this war that was going on uh, in legislatures and among high level officials in uh, in the areas where they lived? Yes, baking powder was front page news at the time. It was everywhere, and if you see the people in Missouri going, "Why do we have to pay for this high price trust baking powder?" And you've got hearings in Congress going on because the pure food and drug law is coming up. And the baking powder war was so intense, it almost prevented passage of this. So people are crazy over this. And the Missouri House of Representatives keeps passing bills to repeal the baking powder law. And the Senate is bribed and overrides just repeatedly. And finally, Ziegler gets indicted this is businesses having what Stephens calls a license to loot. And it's also one of the reasons this bribery, because it was so public, is one of the reasons that we shortly after this got a constitutional amendment saying that state legislatures and state senates could not elect national senators anymore, that the people were going to do that. I mean, there was so much floating around and every federal agency got involved. So did the Home Economists. The Home Economics Association was founded in 1899 in Lake Placid. So women, yeah, very involved. The problem in the cookbooks is you need twice as much of royal as the other baking powders. So if some of you out there are have old recipes or old family recipes or clippings and you get this fail, what happens when you put too much baking powder in something like a muffin is it will rise up. And then it will crust and fall over and it looks like a little elf hat. You know, it's got this little bump on the top mm. and it tastes bad. So that's it. There is chaos in the cookbooks here. Women are fighting over this and they don't know what to do. And then congressional hearings. And then finally, this is where double acting comes from. People always go, what is double acting baking powder? This was advertising by calumet baking powder to say this once in the bowl, the baking soda with the liquid, and then in the oven. And Royal was a single acting baking powder and they couldn't counter that. It was the beginning of the fall. Yeah. And I, so I was going to ask you to sort of take us there next. What happened in Missouri, first of all, like let's button that up. I'm assuming at some point these laws were repealed. 1905, it was finally repealed. There were trials. Nobody was found guilty from this. So the next big part of the war was the price war. And this is where a Yale graduate really comes to the fore. And a company that wasn't even kind of considered a player, which was Claver Girl, based in Indiana. We got a guy named Tony Holman. He comes to Yale. He's on the undefeated Bulldogs, the legendary 1923 and 24 Yale football team. And then he goes back to Indiana. And here comes the Depression. He's like, I just have this little business and I'm going to lose it. And I don't know if what he learned on the playing fields of Yale made a difference, but he just took on everybody else in the country. And these were companies like Royal had been in existence since the 1860s and Rumford 
in since the 1850s. They had distribution networks, they had warehouses, they had salespeople all over the country. And Tony Homans got six trucks. Yeah, I got six trucks and I'm gonna just blow everybody else out of the water. And he did. In 1931, he started and by 1935, he had the majority of the market in the United States, the baking powder market. It is one of the most phenomenal things in business ever. And so Clapper Girl today, I mean, I think they're still one of the main baking powder companies that are out there, correct? Yes. It's Clapper Girl Money in Indiana that is behind the Indy 500. The Indianapolis 500 is made possible by baking powder money. When I think of recipes and, and my family's history of recipes, it's something written down on an index card 50 years ago that my mom might be able to dig out from the cabinet, right? Like, like how well preserved is the record of just what people were doing, particularly when we look back to you know colonial America? Um, was this stuff uh, written down or was it more passed by oral tradition? Oh, that's an excellent point because recipes, everybody goes, oh, those are old recipes. They don't have amounts. They don't have things. You know, they're so vague. They were not. The women who wrote these books for publication were crystal clear and everything was by weight. It was all pounds of this, pound of that. That's where you get pound cake, a pound of this, a pound of that. But then Americans started moving across the country and you're not going to take a big old scale on a covered wagon, but everybody's got a <laughs> everybody's got a cup and a spoon. Um, for example, there's a cookbook published in 1836 in New Haven that has a recipe that I tried that I didn't even need to adjust. Mm -hmm. um, it was, and it's, it makes a tremendous, it makes a delicious cookie. And it's, a, it's called a spice snap. And it's got five spices, not just ginger. You know, so some of these are just wonderful. You see how modern some of them are. And then we see this process of, of change until finally we don't get consistency in the cookbooks until the 1970s. And it's just recently that something like the joy of cooking has dropped the use of the words double acting. But baking powder is the reason that the phrase flat as a pancake has no meaning for Americans. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I guess just quickly talk about that. So I had pancakes this weekend with my son and I hadn't really thought about the, the fact that they were fluffy was uh, in large part because uh, baking powder is in there. I don't know, Linda, if you've tried to make pancakes without baking powder, but they're generally disappointing. They're I a think. crepe. It, it's a crepe, <laughs> yeah. you know, which means crisp in French. It's flat and that has its own use. But you can make pancakes without eggs. Just beef up the baking powder. And that's what happened. We saw this during World War One, when things were rationed. It's like, just bump up your baking powder. But America's bread is baking powder biscuits. That's America's little black dress of food. You can dress that up. You can dress it down. If you just drop it, it's more rustic looking. And if you roll it a little and cut it out, you can make squares out of it. You can make round out of it. You can go sweet with it. You can go savory. And cake cake as we know it. if you look at panettone and you look at chocolate cake it's like these are related this is what america did with baking powder and that happened so fast that by the 1840s we're seeing cookbooks and saying and certainly after in the gilded age the 1870s and 80s young women you need to watch this everybody's eating cake everywhere all the time so that's us we invented that 
Yeah, I think uh, we had mentioned Amelia Simmons uh, in, in the last segment, uh, the woman who wrote the first American cookbook, uh, American Cookery, which was published in Hartford. And, and I think the headline on that is just cake, right, on the, on the front with, I don't know if there's an exclamation point or whatever, but it's it's there, it's present. And this is 1796 that America's already kind of, you know, pivoting in, in this direction. Right. That's the big selling point, cakes. The biggest cake, the most important one, is called Independence Cake. That is a precursor of raisin bread. It's got raisins, it's got cinnamon, it's got spices in it, and it's dressed with gold leaf, and it's frosted, and then you put greenery around it, and you can see this is the masterpiece, and here, here is us, here is America on the page in independence cake and election cake. These are the things that define us in a representative democracy, so anything that's in the food is in the culture. And it's in cake. One one thing that I sort of gathered from your your book, uh, Linda, about baking powder was that this really is, in many ways, it's sort of the the quintessential American culinary thing, right? I mean, it's it's it has a big uh, history that's tied up with you know individualism and people you know baking in their own home, American desire for efficiency and getting things done quickly, and then of course there's all the the economics that were at play here too. But I mean, I guess just as we think of like what food really is the the quintessential American thing. Baking powder, granted, is an ingredient, not a food, but it seems like it's right up there. It ranks right up there on the list. Birthday cake is an American invention. Happy birthday to you is an American invention. And sprinkles, the whole name of a cupcake, this is another American thing. We like personal food. A cupcake is a personal cake, a roll, a baking powder biscuit. So cake, biscuits, pancakes, waffles. Before, if you wanted pancakes for breakfast or waffles, you had to make sure you had yeast. And if you didn't, you had to make yeast. So the burden on women was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And, you know, yes, baking powder, here here it comes. Mm. Foolproof and inexpensive and on our tables, in our kitchens. That was food historian Linda Civitello talking with Connecticut Publix Patrick Scahill on Where We Live. You can learn more in Linda's book, Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Food Fight That Revolutionized Cooking. And you can listen to the complete episode on ctpublic.org slash where we live. Katie Pellico produced it. I'm Robin Dion Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Katie Tolerski, Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. Our interns are Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned covering everything from your favorite ice cream shops to cookbooks to holiday food, wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like the show, give us all the stars. Rate it, please. It helps other food lovers find us. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.